And the challenge to American democracy is the effort by Trump and people associated with him to try to change the rules of the game so that their side wins. If we can't win at the ballot box, let's change the rules so our votes are counted and their votes aren't. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Lynn Vavrick. Lynn is a professor of political science at UCLA who studies American politics, and in particular, the effects of political campaigns on election results. She's the author or co-author of several books about recent presidential elections. And you can often find Lynn in the newspapers or on television. She has a great story about how her career developed, including how and why she chose political science over the law. Lynn is a political scientist that political practitioners ought to know. She's a great guest. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Lynn Vavrick at UCLA. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Lynn, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Lynn Vavrick, and I'm a political science professor at UCLA. I've been at UCLA for about 22 years, and prior to that, I taught in the government department at Dartmouth College. I have a PhD in political science. I study mostly campaign effects, so largely in the United States, largely presidential elections, although not always, always about persuasion and largely in the area of political advertising and messaging. Yes. And you've become a professor of prominence in this area from what, everything <laughs> I can discern. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. I love that. I think that should be an official university title. <laughs> uh, maybe they should add that or maybe they have it already. I would love to get to know you a little bit better, and this seems like a good vehicle for this. Can you tell me a little bit about how you grew up and like what the origins of your interest in politics are? Sure. So if you haven't already figured it out from my accent, I am from the Midwest. And so I grew up just outside of Cleveland, Ohio, on the West side in, I suppose, in the 1950s and 60s, what would have been called the white ethnic suburbs of Cleveland, very close to a little town called Parma, Ohio, though not in Parma, which has been in the news recently because it's where a lot of Ukrainians settled. So the west side of Cleveland has a lot of Slavic settlements. And I was adopted. Although my family was not Ukrainian, I did go to a Ukrainian day school on Saturdays for lots of reasons. My, I was an only child. My parents didn't want me to be alone, um, but really got steeped in that culture, which is prominent in that area of the country. That was my first introduction to politics, is spending time at this Ukrainian school with these Ukrainian people and just hearing how much they, I'm going to use the word disliked, the Soviets. And so Soviets were bad. We heard that all the time. They took their culture. They tried to take their language, et cetera, et cetera. My second moment of political awareness is that my family, from the time I was very young, like five, six, seven years old, we went on a winter vacation every other year. And every other year, we went to Mexico. Even as a seven and eight-year-old, I appreciated how different it was relative to where I was living. 
And my parents were unusual in that they encouraged me to make friends with local families and little girls who lived in the neighborhood where we were staying. And I at one time went to school with one of the little girls for a couple of days. And I came back and I said to my dad, why is it so different here? There was no running water and there was a lot of poverty. I said, I, I can see like that there are signs and stuff. They're having a they're having an election. I really hope that the people of Mexico will elect a president who will make things better for them. I was probably about eight. And my father, you know, in that like father kind of way, we were in a taxi cab. I'm in the back and he's in the front. He takes his hand. He's like, oh, Lynn, Lynn, you know, it's not a real election. And, you know, for him, it was just this thing he was saying. But for me, it was a devastating moment. I thought, what? You know, all of this campaign effort, these signs, these posters, these placards, and it's a sham. And that really stuck with me. So those two things when I was very young made me very interested in campaigns and how people could elect leaders that would help them and would deliver the things they wanted. It's too bad we just had a big sham presidential election, I guess, here <laughs> in this country. Everything old is new again. Yes. So you went off to college, Arizona State, if I remember. Yes. Yes. And tell me about that. What was that experience like for you? Yeah. I I went to Arizona State University from Cleveland, sight unseen, on a leadership scholarship. And um, Arizona State University had a, a specific program in leadership development. And they took about 20 in-state students and two out-of-state students every year. And they ran the program through an organization called Key Club International, which is a youth service organization that is sponsored by the Kiwanis Club. And I was very active in Key Club in high school and was the the key club governor of the state of Ohio, uh, <laughs> you know, position of prominence. <laughs> yes. um, no, we did a lot. We did a lot of good things. We started a suicide prevention hotline across the state. So we did a lot of good things. And so I applied for this scholarship and I got it. And I knew two things. I knew it wasn't going to cost my parents any money to send me to college, which I knew they were going to think was a good thing. And I knew that Tempe, Arizona was about 2,000 miles away from where I grew up. And boy, that sounded pretty good to me. I guess, and a third thing, there were palm trees. So I went and the program was fantastic. I got a tremendous education. I was able to quickly figure out that I liked small classes, not big ones. And so I took a lot of upper division, small seminars. I actually took some graduate courses in political science. My freshman year, I was lucky enough to have a bunch of great assistant professors that were hired there who really encouraged me to take their graduate courses. But I wanted to go to law school. I didn't know anybody who was a college professor or who do you know when you're just a kid growing up in the Midwest? My mom didn't graduate from high school and my father went to college, was an accountant and then a small businessman. So I only knew, you know, you could become a doctor, you could become a lawyer. I knew I didn't want to inherit my dad's uh, wholesale heating and plumbing supply business, though he would have really liked that. So I was all going to go to law school. A couple of those faculty members really tried to discourage me from doing that. No, we should get a PhD in political science. I didn't even really know if that was something that I would like or that I could do or what kind of pathway that meant. I suspected I would like teaching. I sort of knew that. And I knew I liked research because I had done some as an undergraduate and had taken these graduate courses, but it seemed very uncertain to me. So I took the LSAT and I went to law school for one day. Well, you must have been a, a very good student of political science if your <laughs> teachers are trying to get you to take upper division courses. And what makes a good student, as I bet you know better than me, is interest in the subject and willingness to learn about it, enthusiasm about it. Th that must have been right there early on as a freshman in college, right? I'm pretty curious about most things. That probably helps. And then as you've probably already figured out, as my mom used to always say, like, I can talk. 
And so, you know, I'm willing to talk in class and ask questions. And I think those two things, even at a place like Arizona State, where there are lots of people, probably identified me pretty quickly. And I'll tell you something else. In this leadership program, they told us the first week, we met every week as a group, and they made us go to our professor's office hours and introduce ourselves. You know, not waste their time. Just say, hi, I just wanted to come by and introduce myself. This is who I am. I'm in this class. Really looking forward to it. Great to meet you. And even that, I can tell you at UCLA, which is not as big as Arizona State, but I teach big classes and so few students come to meet me. So I'm sure that that also helped. Yeah, I have a daughter in college now, my older daughter, and I've always talked to her about leadership as like probably more important than aiming at domain knowledge in a particular area. Sometimes having generalized skills in leading people is is more valuable in the world. It's certainly important. I spent a long time after college when I was in graduate school and as an assistant professor where you're just grinding away on your research, thinking that all of that time I spent developing leadership skills and thinking about those things was wasted. And then when you reach a point in your career where you maybe have a department leadership role or a university leadership role, I just said to myself, oh no, it was the most important thing I ever did, right? Because all of a sudden you're hurting cats and how are you going to do that? So it's, I think it is really important. So you continued, got your master's? I did. So I, so I went to law school for one day. Oh yeah. Tell me that, tell me that story. Like, <laughs> so that's a, it's a big thing to apply to law school and then retreat so quickly. How did you get clarity so quickly? I can't believe that, that I did this, but I decided I want to go to law school in Washington. It was a way to get to Washington DC and be there. And I really liked politics. And, but I kept thinking about those political science graduate courses and I really liked doing the research. And at that point in time, this is the beginning of the 1990s. Um, the kind of research people were doing was survey-based and everybody had the same survey data. Nobody was out there collecting their own survey data. Like there's the internet's just like, a, you know, nobody had access. So I really liked the kinds of things I was able to do with these data. And I kept thinking about it. And I go off to orientation and we're at day, day one and I met some people and I'm sure they're fine people. But just in that first day, I was like, I don't know if I want to spend my career around this set of people. And I don't know what being a lawyer is like. Again, I didn't know anybody who was an attorney, but I do know now a little bit about what it's like to do political science research. And I really like that. And I've got this set of faculty members back at Arizona State telling me, you're going to be good at this. You don't know it right now, but you're going to be good at this. And so I thought, you know, like, I should go do that. And so I went to a payphone because that's what you did in 1990. I used my calling card to call my advisor back at Arizona State. And I said, you know what? I think you're right. I don't want to go to law school. I want to get my PhD in political science. How do I do that? And he said, do not go back to that orientation session. Pack <laughs> your bags, get on an airplane, come back here, and I will get you into our PhD program at Arizona State. And I said, okay, like that's fantastic. I have a pathway. But I had to tell my parents. And so I called up, my dad answered, and I said, so here's the thing, like this guy at Arizona State, like John Gear, he's at Vanderbilt now. But I was like, you know, he really thinks I can do this. And I don't really like, I don't really like what I'm doing here. Like, I want to go back and get a PhD in political science. And I can be a college professor. Like they say I can really do it, you know. <laughs> and um, I'll never forget this. My dad, to his credit, he said, okay, here, here's what's going to happen next. Go back to Tempe. Your mother and I will meet you there on Monday morning. And we're going to want to meet this John Gear. <laughs> and so, you know, I had to arrange this lunch between my college advisor and my mom and dad. And John Gear still talks about this lunch where my father grilled him. Is she really going to be able to do this? 
Um, so I stayed there at Arizona State. I got a master's. Then I left and got my PhD somewhere else. What a incredible sort of resource and turning point in your life to have someone who believed in you enough to help you come to the decision to divert your career like that and to, and to meet with your parents and, and talk them into it. That seems like probably one of the pivotal moments of your life. Absolutely. I mean, John Gear changed my life, like 100% for sure. I think about that all the time when I'm talking to students. For him, I'm sure it was something he probably said a lot to don't go to law school, don't go to law school, don't go to law school. You have too many lawyers in the world, like you should do something else. But to me, there weren't very many people telling me what they thought I might be good at, or not just what you might be good at, but what you might be better than most people at. And that's really the difference. And so when I see something in students, I had a PhD student who I thought was exceptionally talented. He came to me one day and said, I want to be a high school teacher, which is so great and so noble. And I loved that, but I, I felt obligated to say to him, let me just clarify for you. There are a lot of people who are good at this, but I think you could be exceptional and you should think about that before you leave. And so he did and he stayed and now he's a full professor at Harvard. And I really think about when you see that you have to tell people because they don't know. Right. It's so weird. You think like if you are exceptional at something, you must know that. But when you're young, you don't know. And so, yes, John Gear was really important to me and to my family. My parents talked about him forever. <laughs> I think a lot of people drift into their careers without coming to understand what they're good at. And a lot of people, I think, land in good places, particularly talented people and but it it's really important what to have if you have the chance to steer someone young to help them in that moment. Yes. You always hear, oh, if you love what you do, your job isn't work. Those kinds of sayings. And that's definitely true. But you know, you I think it helps to to sort of figure out like, do you get value, like some sort of psychic utility out of being good? at what you're doing, not just liking it, but excelling at it. Some people may not, but it's important, I think, to know that and then to sort of think about, okay, what kinds of things are open to me that I also enjoy? Clearly, you made a decision that you're happy with and you went on to a good career. But do you ever think, actually, I could have gone to law school. I could have graduated <laughs> in that and I could have found my own place in the law, which is a very broad thing. You don't have to be a litigator. You could you could take that degree in so many directions. Do you ever think? Of course. I could have had a great course. life that way anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I will say this. All of the attorneys who I know, they work very hard. And I'm not saying college professors don't work hard, but we have flexibility in when we work and how we work. And most of the attorneys who I know they don't have that flexibility. They work for clients. Clients need things when they need them. The court schedules things and then like removes them from the calendar. So their their lives are much more, their time is less in their control. True. But you could have gone on to teach law at a university. Yeah, or, you for know, sure. And I'm, yeah. I'm sure that at some level, that's probably a path I would have taken. My college roommate ended up doing that and... She runs a great clinic program and is on the faculty at a law school. And I could totally see myself having done that and enjoying that and possibly still being politics adjacent. So you said you went on to get your PhD elsewhere, which University of Rochester, which is known for having a very strong practice in that area. Tell me about the PhD for you. How was that? Yeah, hard. So yes, it's a small program. It's a program known for a particular kind of approach to social science and to political science. And it was an approach that I was really drawn to. So when I was an undergraduate at Arizona State and I was taking those grad classes, and then in the two years that I did the master's program, I was exposed to this approach to politics that comes out of economics. 
and assumes that people are self-interested and that they make rational, which means efficient choices to achieve their, their goals, whatever those goals are. I was really drawn to that. I read the work of a political scientist named Mo Fiorina, who is now at Stanford University. And he had gone to the University of Rochester, got his PhD there, and was a student of a political scientist named Dick Fenno, who had done a lot of work that I also really liked. And I thought, that's the career I want to have. Like, I want to do that kind of work. Fiorina was studying Congress, but also presidential elections. And so I just said, that's where I need to be. It was a very small program, extremely you know, hard to get into, but competitive once you were there. Um, I was on the wait list, got in at the last minute, didn't have much of a fellowship to speak of, but decided to go because I was going to be trained the way I wanted to be trained. I was there four and a half years. I made some of the best friends that I have in my life. It is hard. I keep saying that, but to tell you what I mean by that, we joke now, you know, we all have jobs and everything. We joke now that like we laughed more than I cried. <laughs> it was very challenging. I also entered a PhD program at MIT, not too different in the time frame from you. Yes. And I didn't finish it. I thought it I thought it wasn't ultimately as good a fit for me in my career as maybe it was for you and and for my office mate, Jeff Lewis. Who I, know. <laughs> I know that guy, <laughs> yeah. but I don't regret the time I spent there. I read a lot of really interesting works about politics. I met a lot of people that I respect and became friends with. I met my wife in, in that program. And also I think it, it gave me a sort of a second education after college that was a different type going into one subject deeper. What did you write your dissertation on? How did this advance your education being yeah, in this program yeah. that was so hard? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I always tell people that the difference between undergrad and graduate school is when you're an undergrad, you're a consumer of knowledge. And when you start graduate school, you are accepting the job of becoming a producer of knowledge. And for some people, like, that is fantastically exciting. And for other people, like some of my students, they, they don't even really know what that means. So I sort of figured out very quickly when someone said that to me, I was like, oh, like I have to join a scientific conversation that's happening. And then I have to make a small bit of progress in contributing to knowledge in that area. And I was very interested in campaign effects, as I mentioned earlier. I just knew that like, I was willing to work really hard. And so I should find a project where I could leverage that. And I, I also understood that if my project was going to get attention, it was going to be because I did something hard and unusual, not something that was incredibly difficult intellectually. I'm not explaining that very well, but well, my, I, think I, I think I get that. So what was it? Well, okay. So <laughs> I, I wanted to know a very, the answer to a very simple question. Do the things that candidates say and do in presidential campaigns affect the outcomes of presidential elections? Seems like the easiest thing in the world. But here's how people were doing it. They were taking an existing survey. There was one survey every four years of presidential elections that was available to academics. Gallup and, of course, all those other firms were out there. But that wasn't publicly available. So we had this American National Election Study, and it was a survey that was designed by a board. And there were a lot of questions, but they were chosen to cover a lot of topics. And they weren't choosing specifically, thinking about like, oh, that 1984 election is coming. What do we think the candidates are going to want to talk about? They just had a set of issues. It's a time series. So they started in 1948, and they're asking the same questions decades and decades and decades later, with a few additional ones as the times change. And nobody could find that campaigns mattered. So that was sort of the, the straw man is there are no effects of campaigns. And I just thought like, man, 
Can that possibly be true? First of all, both sides are fighting really hard. So even if there are effects, they're probably getting neutralized. So we got to figure that out. Second thing, these surveys are not even asking questions about the things these candidates are talking about because they're written in the 1940s. So I said, I got to figure out how to square that circle. So I had these two challenges. So the first thing I did was I did a massive content analysis. This is the part about being willing to put in the time of all of the campaign stump speeches, all of the media coverage in the Washington Post, and the content of all the advertisements that presidential candidates ran from 1948 forward. So when I was in graduate school, that would have been until the 1990s. That took me years. I did it by hand, like in the dusty library, reading the microfilm. So I did it all by hand. And then I reduced that. And then I knew, like, this is what Ronald Reagan talked about in 1980. This is what Walter Mondale talked mostly about. And I could characterize the discourse in these campaigns. And that allowed me to do a couple things. I could know what each individual candidate decided to focus on, but I could also say something about how pairs of candidates reacted to the constraints of the other, um, how they tried to leverage them. And that just revealed a lot of interesting things about the dynamics of competition. And then I used that information about what the candidates were actually talking about to try to find survey questions on these surveys where I could measure, did the discourse have any effect? And nobody had ever connected those two things like that. And so that project, which becomes many, many, many years later, my first book project is called The Message Matters. And it's about the centrality of the economy in shaping all of these presidential campaigns. My hope is that it demonstrated that, you know, I, I was a little bit clever. I wasn't afraid to work hard, to do a data collection that took years, and then to, to bring it together in a way that was more sensible than just saying like, hey, on all these things, we don't see any movement. But yeah, no, we don't really know if those things are the things candidates are talking about. But then, we, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's a frustrating thing, I think, to have the sense when you watch politics that the things people say do matter and to see how people make strategic decisions like Trump to go against NAFTA and pick immigration as an issue and position himself in those ways that to me indicate like someone's thinking strategically and this is probably going to move pieces of the electorate. And then the difficulty in pinning that down in a regression and actually proving it. And it seems like there's a bit of an ongoing debate about how much campaign effects matter, what things matter sort of tactically and strategically. What is the state of play right now in, in American political science about campaign yeah. effects? I actually feel like for the first time in my entire career, we're at a moment where practitioners and political scientists, researchers, everybody sort of is willing to say persuasion is hard and the effects are small in size, which does not mean inconsequential, and they go away really fast. And those three things, like in the 1990s, you would not have gotten political scientists like to say, you wouldn't have gotten practitioners to say those things. So a lot of what's happened in the last 30 years is that the two sides have gotten closer together in terms of how we think politics and campaigning works. There are a lot of reasons for that, but, but part of it is that political scientists started talking to practitioners and practitioners started talking to political scientists in productive ways. And that's a real change from where we were. There were always a few in the 70s and 80s. 60s, 70s, and 80s. But but there are many more crossovers now between the two groups. I've talked to political pollsters who've advised presidential candidates and heard how they think about 
what to advise a candidate or how to construct a message. I don't know to what extent you are in that game of of advising or advising advisors, but when you are or if you were, what what would you say to a presidential candidate or their campaign about, given what we know about campaign effects, what ought you do? Yeah, great question. Lots of people just chit chat and talk and we bad ideas around, but I've, I've never had a formal role like you described. But what I would say is two things. One of the most important things in any contest is who you're running against. People often think that that means the quality. That's not what I mean. Every candidate comes with constraints, every candidate and strengths, but the constraints are important. And so you have to identify your opponent's constraints. What's a constraint? Something about them that they cannot change. Okay, so an issue position is not a constraint if they can change that position. You might say like, oh, I'm for universal gun background checks, but my opponent has not come out for that. But most people, a vast majority of Americans want universal gun background checks. So that's a constraint for him or her. No, they could wake up tomorrow They could move over and take your same position and split the electorate with you. A constraint is their age. We hear about that a lot now. Something they've done in office that they can't undo. So you identify your opponent's constraints and you have to think about how they line up relative to your constraints and your strengths. If your opponent is over 70 and you're over 70, well, The easiest way to make sure something is not an issue in a contest is to have both candidates have the same value position attribute on that thing. But if your opponent is 70 and you're 38, that's an opportunity, right? So you want to identify those opportunities where your opponent is constrained and you have an attribute or value or position on that same thing that is appealing to the electorate. Okay, so you identify those things. Then you have to say to yourself, is there a package that you can make out of those things that will allow you to talk about your other ideas, your broader ideas, while always remembering people of your strengths relative to your opponent's constraints? John Kennedy in 1960 is a great example of this. He wraps his whole package in this idea of We're standing on the frontier of the 1960s, the next frontier. What are we going to do? We're going to explore space. We're going to improve education levels. We're going to have discoveries in medicine. So all policy positions are wrapped up in the frontier. He paints his opponent, who, by the way, wasn't much older than him. had a little bit more experience than him, but not that much, as being part of the problem. He's got a lot of rhetorical ways that he, that he does that, that he highlights Nixon's constraints. That's how I think about it. That makes a lot of sense. And having a framework to think about how you position yourself, I think, is helpful. It's cer- certainly very hard to sort out what helped Kennedy beat Nixon. Like you can, he could have done all those things and they could have not mattered. You have that as part of your time series for your message book. What makes you think that those that those moves that he made to package that all together, which you would advise someone to do if they had that advantage, he had that youthful look maybe over Nixon, right? What makes you think that we can actually establish that that is true, that that, that packaging it like that would be helpful? I mean, yes. it makes sense, but yeah. The, the basic approach that I took in the book is you start with the central idea that the economy, the nation's economy is always a focal point for people. And that if you're the incumbent party in a growing economy, you've got a very good chance of getting reelected. So growth is good, declining economy, bad. You can see these handful of cases where incumbent parties in growing economies did not win presidential elections. Those elections are always incredibly close. You try to identify a pattern. 
right? That's the job of science. And because it's social science, it's super messy, but we're trying to identify this pattern from all the chaos. Oh, the good looks and the, you know, whatever else. Um, what is it about those handful of cases that's the same? And, you know, what I was able to kind of put together is that these candidates recognize that the economy isn't helping them. So they don't talk about it. They identify an issue on which they are closer to most voters than their opponent. Their opponent is stuck, constrained in the unpopular position. And then they do the hard work of trying to make those issues more important to voters than the state of the nation's economy in that election. Very few candidates who are not benefited by the economy are able to do that. It's very hard to dislodge the economy as the most important thing, but some are. And when, when they do, what, what I can see in the data is those issues they're talking about becoming more important to people than the state of the nation's economy. What do you think the biggest misconceptions that people who pay attention to politics but don't have access to the best science about it have about the way campaigns work? I just think people think these ads, social media, they think these things are swinging elections by like 10, 15, 20 points. And they are not. Every time I give a talk, it's just a matter of time before we get to social media and how I'm being forced to see all these ads on YouTube or on Facebook or wherever this is how so-and-so is going to win. They're not having double-digit effects. What do you think is the biggest change you've seen in the way our politics have evolved during your career as a political scientist? Well, the biggest recent change is the move that Trump made first and that now others have followed of just talking explicitly about people's attitudes about race. And so if you think back to the 1980s, when there was an ad called the revolving door ad. Is that the Willie Horton? Yes. So there were, there were two, one made by the campaign. One I think was made by the party. Don't, don't hold me to that ad makers. I'm so sorry. But the idea was that this this revolving door ad, which was much more like cinema than the ad that featured Willie Horton was basically a, a, a kind of a talking head. It was the image of him and then there was some script. But this revolving door ad was very cinematic and used elements of cinema like uh, fading from black and white into sort of sepia tones sounds that are sort of ominous. And the the criticism of that advertisement is that it implicitly was appealing to white Americans' racial attitudes and their association between Black men and crime. So it never explicitly came out and said that, but it was implicit in the way this advertisement was presented. And that criticism happened immediately when the ad was aired. And it took the idea from being implicit to explicit. And then the ad makers, the candidate, everybody sort of said, not our intention, not our intention. Okay, we won't run the ad. You know, was... And since then, there has sort of been this equilibrium on both sides And this is not to say that candidates did not make racial appeals. They absolutely did. But they were never explicit. It would be the kinds of topics that were discussed where they know that people are going to link that to race. There's this great ad maker from the 1960s, a guy named Tony Schwartz. And his approach to advertising is what eventually becomes known as deep sell. And Tony Schwartz always said, the job of an advertiser is to put people to work for you. So you know what's in people's heads and then you evoke it in the ad without the person even knowing. And that's how race was showing up in these presidential campaign ads after the 1980s. 
And I think we had sort of thought like that that was the equilibrium, that there was no payoff. This is the thing that, that people thought there was no payoff in making that appeal explicit because once it was explicit, you got the pushback. Trump just came along and demonstrated that that belief was wrong, that there was a payoff by making race and people's racial attitudes explicit. And now that he has demonstrated that, it will be very difficult to go back. And to me, that's one of the biggest changes. It's a recent change, but it's a very big one. Did that surprise you? Yes. He's done a lot of things that surprised the average follower of politics and the professional follower of politics. But he kind of has copied it from around the world where it worked. Is there something going on where we're not paying attention to politics more broadly when we're thinking about U.S. politics that we didn't anticipate that that someone could play this demagogue card or this authoritarian card or this race card? I mean, it used to get played in the governor's races, the Wallace. Why do you think we missed this opportunity that he seized upon? Wow. Okay. Great question. So, okay. A couple of things are important. Trump isn't creating these attitudes that he's going to leverage. Okay. They exist in the population. They exist in both parties in different shares. And maybe they exist in him. Possibly, but it's important. That's an important part of this story is that he's not creating these attitudes. People have attitudes about race. Lots of work on this. Okay. What is happening as the country is changing demographically, we get to a point where all candidates can see that there is a pathway by leveraging these values that will build a coalition of voters that possibly could advantage that candidate. Okay, so it's not hard to see. Pollsters knew this. Consultants knew this. Candidates knew it. But we're living in a world at this point in the early 2000s where everybody still believes that there's no payoff for going there, right? That you get backlash. You try to make this about racial attitudes and you're going to get huge backlash. So... There's a lot of conversation about what are the correlates of racial attitudes and patriotism is one of them. And people were talking about this in the early 2000s. If we can run on patriotism, we will also be provoking these racial attitudes to be a little more prominent. But then a couple things happen. Barack Obama gets the Democratic nomination in 2008 and again in 12. You can go talk to the consultants who worked for John McCain and Mitt Romney. You can talk to Mitt Romney himself. And what everyone will tell you, and they've written books about this, is that both of those candidates who are running against Obama explicitly said to their campaign staff, we are not going to make this about race and racial attitudes. And so that's a constraint for them. Even if they saw the pathway forward, they were not willing to do it. Now, we could have a long debate about whether their campaigns actually were not about race. But to the extent that they do campaign to activate racial values, it is not explicit. Those things are happening at an implicit level. So that's a large part of why it's not happening earlier in the U.S. And then Trump comes along and sees those same voters, sees that same opportunity. And he is not a politician. And people think politician is, that's a dirty word. You know, nobody wants to be a politician. Here you have an example of two politicians who made deliberate choices to not activate racial attitudes in their campaigns explicitly. And then a business guy who comes in who is, has not spent his career 
trying to build the public good, to shape the public square for the good of the community, like a politician does. And he makes a very different choice. And he says, no, in the book we wrote about 2016, we called it hunting where the ducks are. He sees the ducks in that pond and he says, I'm going to go get those ducks. Mitt Romney knew the ducks were there. John McCain knew the ducks were there. Everybody knows the ducks are there. But Trump makes a different choice. Is it happening in other places around the world? To get back to your question, yes. Was it inevitable that it was going to happen in the U.S.? Maybe not. It didn't have to happen in 2016. There were 17 other people who ran for that Republican nomination. None of them were going to do what Trump did. He decides to run and he does it. If he had decided not to, maybe it plays out very differently in the future and we never have it. So some of it is baked in, but some of it is epiphenomenal. You said Trump is not a politician. And as you were describing that, I was thinking maybe he's more of a politician. He seems willing to play with power in a whole lot of ways that actually often are effective for him, even though he makes lots of mistakes also that backfire. But like the way he ousts senators that are Republicans, that are moderates early on, the way he pushes his party to stand with him, the way he wielded power even in the debates it's a willingness to do things for power that maybe other Republican candidates had compunction about. But isn't that kind of like almost another order of politician? Do you see what I'm saying there? I, I, I totally understand that he, he, he does things that other people won't and haven't done. I think we want to think about a couple of things. When we're electing people, to public office. I'm not saying it's admirable or we want to model ourselves. I get it. I get it. I get it. But one of the reasons you choose a candidate you choose is because they line up with the things that you want. They want to build the same world you want to live in. Okay. So that's individual choice. But there's also an element to it that you need them thinking about the best societal outcome in a lot of situations, not advancing their own personal best outcome. And that's a little bit where, for me, politicians are used to thinking about that and thinking a little bit about, you know, something that game theorists call um, a strategy that they call minimax. You want to minimize the maximum regret that you might get from adopting a certain strategy. There might be a small probability of high payoff, but a very big probability of a bad outcome. You don't always go for Trump is not a minimaxer. He's willing to, oh, there's a small chance this really works. I'm going to go for it. And you can just look at what's happening to him that a lot of the times that doesn't work out for him. He doesn't care. Now, you could say to me, but neither do his voters. He has a lot of latitude that that someone whose career's work has been in politics that voters are not going to give that kind of person. The last chapter, if I remember in your latest book, has a title like Subversion, right? Yes, yes. And it's about Trump's probably biggest risky swing, which is the election denialism around 2020. And it's the most out of step with the long culture of democratic politics, small d, in this country, right? It's not accepting the national election result like Nixon did in 1960 or Al Gore did in 2000, incredibly close elections that were very contestable quite reasonably. That seems like it not only poses a test to our democracy, which is still unsorted, but also to your profession. When you have to write about someone who's deviated that far from a really important norm, maybe the most important norm, how does that affect you when you're writing a book like The Bitter End, when you're teaching students who come with a variety of opinions? I'm sure even at UCLA, there are some number of students who think that that maybe the election was not fairly counted. And how do you decide how to teach, how to write in this really new development that we've had? Yeah. The writing is harder than the teaching. 
the teaching for me, I always try to give the students analytic tools and then we just apply them. And I try to make choices where we're applying these tools in situations showing that one side is doing well or not and the other side. So I try to provide that kind of framework for them and then those kinds of cases. The writing is harder. It's harder, gosh, I want to say like emotionally. In 2016, we didn't think we were writing a book about the election of Donald Trump. Like everyone else, we thought we were writing a book about the election of the first woman president. The glass um, ceiling shattered or something like that, right? The book title yeah. was, we were called, we, you know, we had a working title. We were going to call it Shattered. Um, we had, you know, we write these books in real time and very fast. Uh, this is work I've done with my co-author, John Sides at Vanderbilt, Chris Tosanovich at UCLA, and Michael Tesler at UC Irvine. We had to pivot very, very quickly in December of 2016. That was a lot. And then in 2020, to, you know, the pandemic, but then a, another book about these exceptional political moments and Trump. And that's a lot. And so, you know, you get to 2024 and you sort of look out and say, this looks like it's going to be a rematch between Biden and Trump and that it is going to be a replay of 2020, even though 2020 was super unusual because of COVID. And you just have to say to yourself, like, do I want to spend 18 months of my life thinking about that and writing that book? And, and it is very hard to say yes to that. Are you going to write a 2024 book? No, um, none of us were up for that. Wow. We have ideas for some other stories about 2024, but they won't center on the election. They will end with the election. So possibly like the story of how the Republican Party goes from mourning in America to make America great again. How does that happen and what issues are enabling that? But that would end with what happens in 2024, not be the story of 2024. So it's hard to think about all the time, but it's actually like literally challenging to write the text in a way that is accurate without being inflammatory. And so we spend a lot of time really thinking, choosing the words carefully. What are you worried about in terms of being inflammatory? I talked to Jeffrey Toulis, who is a political scientist, you'll know. And he said, if I remember it's a while ago, that he's actually changed the way he teaches because of the threat to democracy. And he's much more positioned himself to say, look, something really wrong is going on here in this party and with this man and beyond with Trumpism. Why are you steering away from that if you are, if this is what's going on or are you not? I don't think we steer away from it. The I mean, your language is often like the, the not telling the truth, Trump that did this or whatever, but yeah. yes. Like, you know, so yeah, I, I don't think we steer away from it. The subtitle of the book is the challenge to American democracy and the challenge to American democracy is the effort by Trump and people associated with him to try to change the rules of the game so that their side wins. If we can't win at the ballot box, let's change the rules so our votes are counted and their votes aren't. We're very clear that that is normatively bad and a fundamental challenge to American democracy. When I say that we choose how we present that carefully, we see these books as scientific efforts. There's a tremendous amount of data in all of these books and the arguments we make are derived of the data. So we want to make sure that we're saying that this is not something, right now we're seeing it from Trump, but it's not something that only he could do. This is a challenge to democracy that we should be concerned about from all possible candidates. Again, it's like, what are the tools to evaluate this? Well, if you're trying to erode the guardrails and the rules, that's bad. And it doesn't matter who you are. If you do that, it's bad. If you were advising a political practitioner, not an academic, about what they should read about campaign effects and about the science 
of thinking about elections in, in a more academic way, who would you direct them to read? And oh, what sort of good works? grief. Um, I, I, I'm just going to say right now, I cannot give you a list. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of good political science now that I think practitioners would enjoy and would learn and would just be curious about. I'm just going to put it in chunks. There's, you know, there's a set of people working on election administration that are really finding very interesting things about, you know, the move to vote by mail, uh, the move to no fault absentee, all those kinds of changes to ease voting. I would say all of that work is very interesting, um, counterintuitive. And then there's just the counterintuitive finding is sort of that there's not that much effect from these changes. Is that what well, you're saying? That it doesn't benefit one side more than the other. And yeah. so if that's what you mean by not that much effect, yeah. like yeah. that it's, this is not a huge democratic benefit to make it easier to vote. The evidence doesn't seem to be pointing in that direction. I think all of that is very accessible. There was a piece that was just in the Washington Post a couple of days ago about some work a colleague of mine did, Dan Thompson at UCLA, looking at the Zuckerberg infusion, the grants that were given in 2020 to election administrators. So there's just a lot of interesting work there that I think practitioners would enjoy thinking about. There's been a chunk of work on political advertising and the effects of advertising, the decay, the content. And I think all of that is interesting. Some of it uses tremendous amounts of data. A lot of it is experimental. And I think that's interesting. And I think all of this stuff really does percolate into the practitioner's world. And then, of course, the third bucket would be all of the effects of electioneering, knocking on doors, canvassing phone calls, all of the good work that Don Green and Alan Gerber started when they were at Yale together. And that work continues and practitioners, I know, already know about that stuff, too. Well, it, you, I think you found yourself in a pretty interesting place and an interesting time to do the work that you do. And I, I think that's enviable. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? Well, one of the things you could have asked me is how the curating of state voter registration files into national files might have changed the kind of research political scientists do. A question that I know you might have a, a little bit of your heart and soul in. How would you answer that? Uh, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. I mean, we, we have for so long been data poor in studies of elections in political science. Campaign operatives and candidates and political parties have better data than we do. And for understandable reasons, they don't make those data public. We don't have the kind of money to collect daily polls, to collect long panels, the kinds of data that we would need to be able to identify effects that are on the size of like a couple of points. We're really jammed up in terms of our ability to collect data. The internet and the affordability of data collection has started to change that, but when folks like you came along and said, like, you know, hey, here's actual behavioral outcomes. Who registers to vote? Who turns out in which elections? Those kinds of data enabled all of the work on electioneering that Don Green and Alan Gerber did. And then also all of this work that people in election administration are doing. Could we go call up every secretary of state in every state in some cases, in some places, called direct counties or townships. We could, but we don't have the man hours to do that. And we don't have the money, really, to buy every year. Some states charge tremendous amounts of money for those records. Others charge 20 bucks. So to have somebody come along and organize all of that and then make it available to academics, that's a game changer. Lynn, super great to talk to you. I could go on another couple hours. <laughs> I can't <laughs> I'm, imagine. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you got other better things to do. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, thank you so much for having me. This was a fun conversation. That was Lynn. She is at lynnvaverick.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com 
or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.